0: Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced, middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks, and he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Hi, listeners, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Hi there, I'm Jordan Bonaparte, and on my show, Nighttime, I seek out and explore Canada's most fascinating stories. Nighttime stories are told using intimate discussions with those affected.
1: They left you there. That was the last time anyone ever saw her.
2: Jailhouse interviews with those held responsible. The
0: context of that meeting would be some kind of mass shooting.
2: And any other way necessary to get you to the heart of the story. You can join me by subscribing to Nighttime wherever you get streaming audio.
1: La not so confidential. This is Dr. Shiloh, and I'm here with
2: Dr. Scott. Hey, everybody, welcome back. It is wait, what day is it? I'm always like it's starting to talk.
1: Thursday. This is
2: Thursday, March 12th. Yeah. I rarely. We don't ever really say what day we're recording because we we record and then we yeah. you know edit and we get it down out within not like a week. Relevant. It's not. <laughs> but I wanted to say something this time because this is like a weird time and. The world right now with the it coronavirus. Is. I mean, it's really odd. Yeah. So I just wanted to say that we're okay. Um, yeah. You know, we live in a big city. We live in Los Angeles, and there's a lot of measures being taken. Um, there's a lot of excuse me if you're one of them. There's a lot of dumbass people out there buying toilet paper and paper products and water when. Yeah. That's really not what you should be focusing on folks.
1: Panic if, will spread faster than the virus.
2: Exactly. And that's actually I mean we there's actually even been some articles about it that people are not really critically thinking about what they might need if something actually happens. Right. And what you need is dry goods. You need food that's going to last you.
1: Which I've been prepping forever. I know, you're, so. you're
2: on the edge of prepper. I got
1: ammo and canned
2: goods. <laughs> I know, we're coming to your place for guns because I don't have guns. I just I just know how to use a bat.
1: Yeah, I, my friend and I went to breakfast this morning and we were just kind of laughing at it because her husband was kind of freaking out and like, well, we got a plan, we got it, and she's like, I'm going to go get mimosas with Shiloh. <laughs> yeah. It's Thursday morning. I yeah. had the day off work. She's like, whatever. <laughs> and we are just kind of laughing how people are really losing their minds.
2: Yeah, it's weird. And it's also, you know, working with law, you know, you and I both work with law enforcement. And in the context of sharing office space with, with law enforcement, office space with law enforcement, I have... Like You're
1: in a big open cubicle, huge open
2: open concept right. with tons of mental health and and law enforcement, and um, it's a cool mix. I mean, it's just so dynamic. Yeah, I love is. it. But well, you know, two of my cop friends are on on the edge of being like really really highly concerned with this like mm-hmm. they kind of been waiting for something like this to happen so they're a little they're edgy like, yes yeah, but uh, yeah, i don't know okay it could, it could. <laughs> and then there's the other ones that are looking at them going Come, Dude, come on, down. just calm down. But now the reason I'm I'm telling them myself because we're we're I'm recording this because we may be recording in a week and a half and going, okay, we're down to our last sheet of toilet paper.
1: We're in a bunker somewhere, <laughs> coming to you live.
2: <laughs> I'm in a bunker with beans and old corn cobs to use as toilet oh my God. paper.
1: Stop it. If we say it out loud, it won't happen. (laughs) Right,
2: exactly. We're pushing back against the the, uh, nihilistic existentialism.
1: And so I'm going to insert here to not let coronavirus freak you out and make your summer plans to come see us in Kansas City, Missouri. Absolutely. Uh, The True Crime Podcast Festival, go to their website, and you can purchase tickets. And if you put in the code L-A-N-S-C, uh, you'll get ten percent off of your tickets. Yeah. So make your flight arrangements. We are we're making our flight arrangements for CrimeCon today.
2: Seriously, we are making our flight arrangements. That's something educate yourself on. This is the time actually really to invest and in travel because all the airlines have lowered their prices. Make a you know, make your trip for six months from now when all this stuff is blown over, and they're also letting people reschedule when yep. necessary. So it's a win-win situation, I think.
1: Yeah. It is a little annoying, like to get email after email from every goddamn company you have a subscription to saying, "We know you're concerned about the coronavirus." I'm like, who cares? I don't need whoever you are to send me an email. I'm taking care of myself.
2: I'm an adult. Well, you have you have you have special skills in that area. Some people don't. Like I don't. get
1: an airline, and I actually watched the American Airlines video today, but I don't need like. I don't know, Rodan and Fields send me an email, oh, or you know oh I mean, God. like everyone is <laughs> sending out emails. Who
2: cares? Oh my god! Okay, I didn't realize this was (laughs) in.
1: Wow, I love them. That'd be
2: like Sephora sending out. Yes,
1: yes. (laughs) All
2: right, we're taking off all the samples off the floor, so it won't spread coronavirus.
1: Store to buy your stuff.
2: Come on. Exactly. Okay, so this week uh, we're going to jump right in. Well, we didn't jump right in. We did our usual gossip thing. But hey, this is one of those subjects that is something that I had a very concrete black and white view on and a lot of anger and a lot of judgment. And, you know, and here I am, I'm a mental health professional with a bunch of letters after my name. I'm supposed to really be taking the perspective of seeing the big picture. And, you know, it's interesting because doing... Doesn't it doesn't
1: mean we don't have judgment. We're human. Yeah.
2: Right? We're, we're absolutely human. And... Um, this makes me now want to go look for other cases and examples that I have very concrete views on because I want to challenge myself. And what we're covering today is the story of, uh, Ethan couch, yep.
1: and the efflu- affluenza teen, the
2: affluenza teen. He's not even a teen anymore. Right. Uh, and you've but- wanted
1: to do this for a while. I mean, you've kind of like popped this idea in there. I think even when like the college, um, admission scandals was happening. Yes, it just kind of it seems like it really sort of piques your interest into this world of like rich people getting away with shit.
2: <laughs> yeah, and you know, but that's I'm glad you said that because that's an that's something that I really should I sh, I, I always want to call myself on, and I think it's it's also like a it's a big issue as a clinician, not so much when you work in maybe community mental health well, maybe it is in community mental health too. But when you work in private practice, you know, I come from I come from very modest backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I don't like to use the word poor anymore, but we there was no wiggle room for myself and my five siblings growing up um, for various reasons. And Uh, but what I've come to realize as an adult is that we, poor is a relative term Sure. and you know, we always had food, we always had clothes, we had school shoes and Sunday school shoes. I mean, as, as old school as that sounds, that's the way it was. And
1: your parents can also create a world for you where you don't necessarily know or feel that you're poor
2: right well there and there's also not the fear of not having a place to sleep not having food to put in your right. stomach not you know not having to have those sort of basic foundational maslow's hierarchy sure. of needs sure. so in in saying that what i want to do is i want to tell on myself when it comes to having a bias against people that have a lot of money because it's not fair to have a bias against people like You know, people work hard um, and they might have opportunities that other people don't have or they create their own opportunities. And I am completely supportive of that. But, you know, in looking, part of the thing of, part of part of being a clinician and being someone who was in therapy for a long time is learning to really look at those blind spots you have and pull them apart like an onion and go, well, what's under this layer? And one of them, when I found years ago, was that, you know, one of the sort of lessons that I integrated from my dad growing up was that and this is a very simplified version so without you know spending an hour talking about my damn therapy needs is learning from my dad this lesson and this is going to sound like a really disjointed lesson but the the message that we integrated is that rich people are bad because they have gotten their money from poor people like us and now on a surface level i never agreed with that but you realize that like when like we're going to be talking about today kids integrate messages sure. into their being and into who they become as they grow up and those can be explicit or implicit messages and you know this is something that i've had to pull apart for a long time
1: well and it it does it is important to look at those sorts of core, core beliefs or messages that you've had when you are working in the position of a therapist because you could have anyone sitting in front of you as a client, and to be able to keep your own stuff in check right. and deal with some you know issues that may come up for you, which we call countertransference, when there's something in our client that is bringing up stuff for us, that you have to still be able to do your job, yeah. put that on the back burner, and then hopefully revisit it after the session and say, what was that about? Why was I feeling that way? Um and, and not let it impact the therapeutic relationship or the therapy for the client. Right. So I think that's that's really interesting. But, yeah, we do have this. We are human. We do have this judgmental side. You and I are consumers of these types of stories to where, you know, we, we have our own opinions and yeah. visceral reactions just like everyone else. Uh, I, hence the reason we're doing this podcast. I mean, this is kind of those dual world worlds for us.
2: Yeah. And I hope that our listeners kind of are on that journey with us, you know, and like so. it's, it's interesting. Cause you know, as we get, I mean, one of the wonderful things is as this podcast grows and we get a bigger and bigger audience, we get a wider range of listeners, which is so awesome. And yet I, I, we don't have time to respond to everything that comes in. But when, when we see something that like, Oh, that like if somebody's hurting, you know, I want to like make sure if I I can, I want to make sure that they're not in the spam folder and they're getting, Hey, there are resources in your area. This is what you can do. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if we ever get so big that I can't do that. I will have to address that when we get there. I mean, you know, it would be a a weird place to be in for me, but you know, one of the things we had recently, I had a great interaction with one of our listeners who had a really strong opinion about one of our episodes, and I completely respect that, mm-hmm. but I also think that as she was listening, she perceived something that I said as supporting a position that I absolutely right. did not support
1: and you had a lovely back and forth with her we did I had, it was
2: a great conversation yeah. and, and like and I felt like, what. A, what an amazing experience to be able to interact with somebody like that that is, you know, on the other end of the ether yeah. listening to us. It was I know. really cool. I
1: know. Those are great moments.
2: So I'm sure we're going to get some reactions about
1: Probably. this
2: episode in that if, way.
1: If you guys want a legal deep dive into this, I'm going to definitely recommend the episodes that Getting Off did with Nick and Jessa.
2: Absolutely. Um
1: so it's episodes 197 and 198. They have so many episodes. Fine, I know we always say that. Um so it's a two-parter. It's great. I think it was challenging. I could I could feel how it was challenging for them just because this case with Ethan Couch started when he was a juvie, and so there's not a ton of records that are available because most juvenile court cases are sealed. Um, and we've talked about that a little bit before. So a lot of what they and we are going off of is just the stuff that's in public record and not official court documents.
2: Right. So... Um, no, we'll, while we're talking yeah. about who we're going to refer... To a lot. We're going to talk about um, Nick and Jessa a, a little bit. Mm-hmm. I really highly recommend you listen to those two episodes. Um, this is one of the times where I'm going to please, please ask you to look at our reference notes in the show notes yeah. because.
1: It's on our webpage. It's on it's our webpage. It's too extensive to put in the
2: yeah, we <laughs> show notes. Yeah, we can't put them in the, in the um, iTunes show notes. But the reason I want you to do this is because I discovered a journalist at uh, a Texas uh, magazine that has done several really amazing articles about this whole case. And um, I really have been uh, impressed by his uh, writing and you know the sources i mean he helped my my research in this area, and gave you know gave some research that I, I gave some points that I had no idea mm-hmm. about this case. So, um, but any, actually, any of the research articles, please go read them because it gives you a really full perspective on what went down.
1: Yeah, I do put a link to our website in our show notes, so you can always just click right there and uh, look at our resources page. And it's very long and extensive, but we think that's important.
2: So All let's right. dive in.
1: Uh, affluenza. So this term has, there's been an interesting evolution, I think, and it really showed up in the late nineties. Uh, Jesse O'Neill, she's the granddaughter of a past president of General Motors. Um, but she wrote a book called the golden ghetto, the psychology of affluence. And, um, that's really who coined the term and was really looking at, How does the impact of money influence behavior and thought processes of children in those families and as they grow and become adults themselves? Um,
2: So right there, just that term alone is already, our exploration of that term is going to challenge the biases that I think it's very easy for people to fall into of money solves everything. Yep. that money is the answer. If you just throw enough money at it, it's going to fix it. If you just have enough money, it will make all your problems go away. And what she's talking about with that concept is that that is absolutely not true.
1: Right. Yeah. that That's the underlying tone of, of all of today. Um, but... So the Webster's Dictionary definition is the unhealthy and unwelcome psychological and social effects of affluence regarded, especially as a widespread societal problem. So it's it's a sense of entitlement, which we're going to talk about a lot today, um, irresponsibility, making excuses for poor behavior, um, which could be dabbling in drugs and alcohol or criminal behavior at times and that there's the excuse that essentially you don't know right from wrong or you've been so coddled that just like you said, throwing money at the problem will make it go away without any concept of there's a responsibility behind it to actually do the right thing or say you're sorry at the minimum, which is just not happening. And I think it's interesting to see like what's going on here. Is there actually a disconnect where these people are so unempathetic or so disconnected from other people and others' feelings. Um, Or I don't know. It's, it's, it's such a crazy
2: space
1: to get into. Have you,
2: have you checked out rich kids of Instagram?
1: I haven't. I know about it. I
2: get so (laughs) triggered and I know, I know that it's trolling. To an extent, right. But when you know there was one where somebody's using, um, oh, this table's wobbly at the restaurant, so they're using their thousand dollar iPad.
1: Oh, you should. you
2: know, or the guys like, I wonder which Roley I'm going to be wearing today, and he's got seven, you know, forty thousand dollar Rolexes right. on his arm, you know, and like that. I, I got to tell the you, triggers. as somebody, yeah. I'm like man, that that gets me riled.
1: Yeah, and it's so funny because that—that's those are like real pictures of people around the world. But then, like, I watch Crazy Rich Asians. I'm like, I love this movie. It's like so opulent and over the top and crazy right. that I'm like, okay, I can get lost in this world. But I know, I mean, I know it's real and that sort of lifestyle exists. But I'm still, I'm watching this depiction of it. Well, right. and they're not like committing crimes. Well, they're also not,
2: not I mean, they're not terrible that's a people, great example really. because they're not being necessarily mean to each other. You're right. seeing that they have struggles and that there's these relationships, yeah. but there's not, like, what we're getting into is criminogenic and, sure, and sure. pathological, you know, aspects of what can happen.
1: Yeah. But sort of this Hollywood version, I'm like, okay, I'm okay with that right. and it's fun. And, but what you're describing is like, Wah. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is that is that a clinical enough? I think so. <laughs> Sounds yeah. of me throwing yeah. up, um, but it it's not recognized as a psychiatric or medical diagnosis, um, and I, I think it's certainly very similar to narcissistic personality disorder. Um, you know, there's some flavors of the person with with affluenza feeling entitled and not caring about other people's needs and um, some similar veins there. But it also, the majority of books or articles about affluenza and even some documentaries has expanded beyond what we're talking about and really talks about wasteful spending and consumerism, especially in the Western world, just our insatiable appetite for more material goods. Um, you know, talking about all the food, you know, that you and I each waste 400 pounds of food a year. Right. or um, Just going, by virtue of living in this country. Yeah. 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 Or um, the fashion industry and just we... Shit all the time, and because I mean, consumerism, yeah. it's
2: consumerism, and it's it's a, a you know, sort of based on an economic model that's supposed to never stop growing, right? Which there's a lot of problems with that, but it's one of the things that drives the West, and then one of the underpinning drives of it as well is social media that has come in really, you know, we it doesn't really have so much to bear in, um, couch's case and the affluenza teens case, but f- as far as consumerism and affluenza and the idea of like, I've got to keep up with that influencer. Right. I've got, even though you don't realize that influencer lives, you know, with five other people in a studio apartment right. and has just found one colorful wall on Melrose to take a picture of.
1: Hey, we've done that. I know that. We've done that. We've really <laughs> done it. I just got coffee across the street from the pink wall today. Oh, cool. <laughs> Um, but but yeah, definitely, yeah. it's that shameless pursuit of material possessions that we are still so wrapped up in, and and that's how a lot of um, like I said, articles and and documentaries talk about affluenza now is in that area. So different,
2: I, and so from I think it's hard about. for us to have like you know we talk about sort of the idea of uh, sociopathy and and the lack of empathy, and yet. When I think the vast majority of the public is reading about a case like this with Couch, myself included, that's my initial reaction. Is like, I don't have any... Feelings for you at all? Right. You you did this 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 and this, right. and now diving into this and looking at some of the real research that's there, it's like, wow! I'm 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 having what's you know uh, um, contradicting emotions. I'm having a dialectic. I'm having to sit in the discomfort of yeah. what I'm feeling. My feeling is real, but it's not accurate or true. It's not the objective truth of this situation. And the objective truth is that. You know, these people brought up in these different environments have just as much of an emotional range and depression sure. and anxiety as us, but some very interesting differences in the populations so that we'll get to.
1: Absolutely. So should we jump into Ethan Couch's well, story, or do you want to cover something else first?
2: No, let's talk about him, and then I want to come back to the research that came up around after, because I think, you know, his, this whole case really sort of brought it into the... yeah. The forefront. So yeah, let's let's go through the timeline. So
1: just as a a quick overview, so like we said, Ethan Couch was said to have used the quote unquote affluenza defense. I think that's more of how the media ran with it. Yeah. It's not as if his attorney said, Here's the defense we're presenting. Right. Um, it came from a statement from his the psychologist that did the psychological evaluation. Um, and we're going to talk more about that, which there's good and bad to it. I mean, the evaluation was done pretty well, but there's some still to be desired with how that all turned out. But um, so I, I don't want to dive much into childhood, childhood with him. Um, but and we're going to talk about his parents. But this horrific crime that was committed in 2013 wasn't the first time that, you know, clearly there was something wrong with this child in the sense that he was just doing whatever he wanted. Probably where crime really started to intersect with him was in 2012. And this is a kid that was running amok. I mean, I don't know if you're going to go into it with his parents, but by the age of 13, he was already... Driving himself to school, the parents said, hey, we're too busy, drive the truck, you know. I picture this little teeny, like, 13-year-old behind a big old wheel of a truck. It just, it seems insane, but he was already um, dabbling in alcohol, driving himself to school, just very little oversight and um his parents just were not very present in his life and when they were they were usually rescuing him but in 2012 in texas in texas thank you hence the truck no i'm just kidding um 2012 he was found passed out in the truck with a girl who was i think 14 she was 14 um and, and he
2: was held at the time i think he 2012,
1: was also 15 15 yeah um and Basically, the cops see this car, this truck pulled over, and they go up, look inside, see these two passed out, knock on the window, and the cop that that stopped them from the get-go said that he was just very arrogant, smart-mouthed, and clearly had an issue with authority in the moment. He said, quote, I verbally got onto him, trying to get him to see how badly he was messing up, meaning look, you're passed out in the truck. There's alcohol. You're
2: underage. You can't drive. You're with an underage girl who's completely naked. Yes. Who's also passed out. Right.
1: Right. Just, hey, like get to see that this is not okay. Yeah. And that it was really clear that he had a hard time listening and he'd come from family and wealth and believed that he was privileged and entitled with no responsibility. So, when, when the cop ends up handing him a citation for X, Y, and Z of you know everything that was going on in that moment, um, Couch responded, "Thanks for ruining my life." Zero again, like zero responsibility. That was always fun as a cop too to have people think that like you're the reason for oh yeah <laughs> all of their misfortunes you in their life. Yes, the you co- know, it,
2: the, the cop is responsible right. for everything that you did for the past. 15 years. Or
1: it's like, you know, if, if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? If this cop just wasn't here, I wouldn't be doing anything wrong. It's your fault that you're here and you're catching me right. doing something wrong. But it wrong. also
2: should be noted that he didn't get arrested immediately and pulled by no. the ear in. He got a fucking citation. A citation. Which, by the way, like, I got a little bit of a problem with the cop. Now, did the cop know that he was from the ultra-rich family? That's one of the things that we need to lay the groundwork for, is this is a rich family, a lot of money, living on an enormous, enormous estate. Did he know him? Or was he just trying to be a good guy and go, okay, well, maybe he'll listen to me?
1: Right, right. Like, let's let's see how cooperative he's going to be. Let's see how I need to push it. I mean, that's always how I approached it. You give people the benefit of the doubt. But at the end of the day, you have... Two underage kids, parents are getting called to the scene, for sure, and you're going to split them up and see what's going on. You don't know if he has sexually assaulted her. You don't, I'm just talking about investigatively, like if, he, if so I were to stumble that upon this. where
2: it's, a, look- They're so both he, underage. They're both underage, and maybe they're only a year apart, and I know that Texas slightly differs in the age yeah, ranges of consent. Right. But is she able to give consent if she's that inebriated- right. There's a there's lot this going is on here.
1: huge, huge investigation. And this is the tip of the iceberg. I know. I know. I just think, like, uh, I've, I don't think I've rolled up on something like this when I was working patrol, but to roll up on this, you would be like, fuck, I'm going to be here for, like, hours because there's a lot to decipher. There's parents to get involved. There's making sure, you know, that... Nobody needs severe you know, medical attention. Right. Who knows? There's just a lot going on. And yeah, to hear that he was handed a citation, essentially, um, his mom was called to the scene. She didn't give a shit about what happened to the girl. She didn't offer to give her a ride home. Nothing. She basically said, I didn't care. I was just concerned about my son. Um, so the mom gets involved. She and Ethan try to keep it on the down low from dad, like, let's not involve him in this. Um, But at some point, he ends up having to go to court for it. So a judge does give him six months probation for possessing and consuming alcohol as a minor. And he has to complete an alcohol awareness course and do 12 hours of alcohol-related community service. Do you think he did it?
2: Of course not. (laughs) Of course not. That's
1: crazy to me. Um, just with the situation, and I know. So I know this is triggering in me. Just how much community service I had to do as a 16 year old when I got arrested for shoplifting, and it was a lot. What? (laughs) What? Yes. Okay,
2: I never. Oh, you're such a bad girl.
1: You didn't know? I
2: did not know that. Are you kidding me? No, you never told me that. Oh my god, I love
1: it. Uh, What story?
2: What shoplift? Oh my
1: god. Okay, Um, mom, turn down the volume. (laughs) Okay, no, no, no. Um, So it was the day before Senior Ditch Day, and we were going to go snowboarding for Senior Ditch Day. So my best friend, my boyfriend, and I decided to go to the mall, and one of the three of us was going to steal something having to do with snowboarding. But we were all there. We all shoplifted. Gina and I, you know Gina?
0: Gina. Gina
1: was there. <laughs> Gina and I each shoplifted a pair of underwear. And my boyfriend had like a lot more than that. But we all three got caught. Gina cried for four hours straight.
2: <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm so sorry. She would
1: not stop crying. It was awful. It was awful. <laughs> I just knew. I always tell the story, like, when they're booking us, when the cops are taking down our information, because we're kids, right? They're like, okay, and uh, what's your father's name? Okay, and what does he do for a living? Retired deputy sheriff. (laughs) And I get, like, a look from the cop. Okay, what's your mom's name? And what does she do? Retired deputy sheriff. (laughs) He's just like, you're going to have fun when you go home tonight, aren't you? And I'm like, please don't let me out of jail. (laughs) It was awful. We were uh, stupid, stupid. But my boyfriend and Gina, their parents paid a fine for them. My mom said, screw that. You're doing community service. I am not paying a fine for your you. Your
2: mom, like, I love, I've loved your mom since I met her, but that was the right thing to do. Absolutely right. Did you have to be like on the side of the road with a fluorescent oh, vest?
1: Oh, my God. So I had to do community service in You were
2: basically Alexis this. in Shits Creek. Oh.
1: <laughs> no, these kids that I was in community service with were so scary and they were like, Oh my God, you got busted. We thought you were a volunteer. Cause here I am like the token white girl there. They are like these hardcore kids smoking marble reds at like 13 (laughs) years old. It's the first time I ever saw crack cocaine. One of them sold a rock to another one while they were doing community (laughs) (laughs) service sorry that was loud in everyone's (laughs) ears um yeah it was terrifying my mom swears to this day that every time she dropped me off on a saturday she cried when she left me and i'm like what she's like yep i cried as i drove away but you had to learn your lesson
2: it's that i can't wait this episode drops, <laughs> and my friend from college, Nicole, who has such a like a brain crush on you.
1: Oh my God. She's
2: I hope she's not destroyed. I hope she's not destroyed by finding out you were a criminal.
1: Well, she shouldn't be, because look what I turned into. <laughs> okay. No, seriously, when I put in for that first position as a police cadet, um, I turned in my packet and everything, and they called me for an interview. And I remember sitting down with the lieutenant, and I'm like, here, I hand him a piece of paper, and I said. I just need to let you know that I was arrested when I was 16, 17. Here's exactly what happened. And um, the chief wanted to hire me. He said, just go down to the courthouse and get it expunged, and we're happy to hire you. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, every law enforcement agency I've ever interviewed with for anything, they I always tell them. I mean,
2: it's, yeah, well, you it's have a to, stupid yeah.
1: kid thing. Yeah, exactly.
2: But god, I never did anything. I was oh such a boring kid. Oh my
1: god! Now,
2: when I got in my twenties, that was a different <laughs> story. But we won't talk about that. Today. Right?
1: So, um, yeah, I think I did more community service than Ethan did for his being passed out drunk in a truck. So,
2: and you know, as as lighthearted as we are about this, that was just the beginning.
1: Oh yeah. Of, oh yeah.
2: That was the precursor to a really horrific crime that resulted in right. the deaths of of many people.
1: Yeah, so 4 days before the deadline of him having to have completed all of that for probation and for community service is the night he decided to throw a party. And basically he and his friends stole some beer from Walmart. I mean, come on, just ask you to ask someone to buy it for you. <laughs> They're already committing a crime by stealing the beer from Walmart, and then he throws a party at his family's second home in Burleson, Texas, and they're drinking beer. They're taking shots of Everclear. I mean, these kids are hammered. And one of the girls that's there, she wanted to go to the store. And so they all pile in his truck. I mean, it's like a big F-350. Interestingly
2: enough, she was the one that was not drinking. Right. She had stopped drinking. She was ready to go home. She couldn't go home because she, I mean, or she was ready to go home. She didn't want to stay at the party because she got her period. They were going oh, to the store. Brilliant. They had looked through the entire house to find sanitary products for her. There wasn't anything, so he said, "Oh, I'll drive you to the store. It's only—I think it was like supposedly ten minutes away." You know, because yeah. I mean, but, yeah, you know, I mean, when you live in the rural parts of you know sure. the Midwest and the South, it's like there's a lot of straight roads. Unfortunately. They were doing shots of Everclear and actually popped one back right before he piled everybody in the truck.
1: Oh, God. such a recipe for disaster. But they they all pile in the truck, including some kids in the bed of the truck. I mean, just awful. And he is going 70 miles per hour down this road, a 40-mile-per-hour zone. And on the side of the road, a motorist broke down and... There's tons of good Samaritans that decided to stop and help her out.
2: The, the guy who owned the, the house she broke in down front in front of, of. Yeah. he comes out to help.
1: Right. Um, there was also a mother, daughter, and um, a youth pastor who was helping. And so you have this group of people. You have these group of kids in, in the truck, and he basically veers off the road straight into all of these
2: Just plows directly into them.
1: And witnesses, or not witnesses, people that lived in the neighborhood said it just sounded like a bomb went off. I mean, they their houses shook. It was awful, awful. He was three times over the legal, legal limit for an adult. 0.08 is for an adult. Point zero, 0.00 is the legal limit for a minor. You're not allowed to have anything in your system. Um, and the victims were Holly and Shelby Boyles, a mother and daughter, Brian Jennings, and Brian Mitchell, who was the stranded motorist. So horrific. Um, many of his friends were left. Forever changed. I mean, we're talking paraplegics. There's Um,
2: one who, there's a young man now who is completely bedridden. He can only communicate by blinking his eyes because his injuries were so severe. Yeah, Um, I
1: think he was one of the ones in the bed of the truck.
2: Yeah, there were body. There were reported body parts. The impact was so. Explosive that it, it literally dismembered bodies, right. and there was a, a woman and one of the neighbors who was calling nine one one was just completely traumatized because she was there were there were body parts and yeah. broken glass and yeah. blood everywhere across the road, and in the there were bodies in the ditches. And yeah,
1: responding officers said it looked like a plane crash. Yeah, where. When there's a plane crash and you have bodies hitting the ground, it, there's just basically grease spots left right. in, from impacts.
2: And so. one, of the, one of the other things I said about, that, about the impact is that it was clear from the damage that was done by Couch's truck, or we should say his father's truck that he stole because he was not supposed to be driving it, he, uh, he never put the brakes on.
1: Which he is had- pretty common in drunk driving accidents. There's not skid marks. There's not an oh shit moment. That's what they theorize is why people who are driving drunk usually don't get too injured. Is because they're not even reacting. They're right. not tensing up. Right. They're He's not, just all
2: loose and yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, who knows if he was even conscious. Um, well,
2: he came too. Pretty he came too.
1: Yeah, pretty quick. And said, basically He said, "I only had
2: I only had two beers. I'm not I'm not going to jail for this."
1: Yeah, and told his friend, "Don't worry, I'll get us out of this." Yeah. Whoa, that <laughs> that takes some balls to say, "Hey, don't worry about all this. I got it." I mean,
2: yeah, I mean, it's not just, even an
1: oh shit. It, well, this I might mean, be the thing that ruins me.
2: Well, he was clearly. I mean, he had been drinking, you know, pure grain alcohol as well as drinking beer, and they had been playing beer pong for a couple of hours yeah. before, so he was pretty blotto, but even so, What does you it know, take
1: to sober you up?
2: Yeah, Shit. and just to make a statement like that is sort of, it's is along the same lines of how he talked to the cop in the initial.
1: Yes, yeah, exactly. So as a result of this horrific accident, um, and it is an accident, it's nothing that was intended, there is absolute, um, You know, there is absolute fault on his part and neglect and lots of things wrong with it, but it is still, at the end of the day, a traffic collision or traffic accident. Um, He gets 10 years of probation. And as Nick and Jessa say, this is pretty shocking for there to be dead people, multiples, and not any prison time even if he is only sixteen years old.
2: And something that we'll touch on a little bit more, I mean not not go in depth because it opens up another complete, you know, could be a six hour episode is the sentence that he got is representative of the amount of money that his family was able to pour into that trial. And if you had a lower socioeconomic status individual and particularly a male person of color, they would not be getting of probation. Of course, they would, they not, would never
1: and, see the light of day again. Right,
2: and it caused a huge public outcry because people were sure. were understandably angry oh. about this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's let's pause at his probation and what he got to talk a little bit about his parents before we talk about the psychological eval. Yeah,
2: so like we're introducing, you know, you, you when you hear this, of, and you know, there's there's something about the physicality of this young man that shifts when you see pictures of him as a child. He's almost like, you know, a little opie from. Andy Griffith, you know, uh, uh, Ron Howard. He has this sort of, you know, oversized head and big blue eyes and a little sort of dainty chin. He's like, almost like a cartoon character, Mm -hmm. cute kid. And he ages into a teenager that is, you know, there's one picture of him as a teenager that looks kind of sweet, like a innocent kid. And then literally every picture after, after that, there is something that has shifted in his eyes. Now, once again, I'm making a judgment right. on just the media that I've been able to get my hands on, which yeah. is apropos of nothing, except that it is chilling to look sure. at. To we kind of talked
1: about that with Aaron Hernandez. Exactly. Last
2: time. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what I mean. But um, So he is uh, the son of, uh, Fred and Tanya couch. Uh, it was the second marriage for both Fred and Tanya. Tanya had a daughter from a previous marriage. Uh, Fred, I don't know if he had children from a previous marriage, but he'd have a previous marriage. Um, and frankly, just speaking out, I'm more comfortable talking about the parents actually than I am really diagnostically about, um, Ethan. But let me tell you, Fred and Tanya, should never have come together. Like this was. They should was, have never
1: procreated. They should
2: never have procreated. They should never have come together. They are. They're
1: pretty toxic. Mix. It's
2: a really toxic relationship, and it has incredible flavors of what we call a narcissistic borderline relationship. Um, it's. That is a type of relationship that can last for years. I mean, it can go on because it it is an unhealthy feeding of toxic and malignant characterological issues that constantly feed each other. Yes. And let me tell you, you wouldn't be hanging, you wouldn't be hanging out with this couple because it would just make you sick. Any couple that's in a narcissistic borderline, it's it's really unpleasant to be around. So, um, so already
1: setting the stage of how would it be to be their child?
2: Right. So Fred is a very successful metal metal tool and die cutting or metal pressing company. He's got an enormous, enormous company, makes a lot of money, um, and feels very entitled because of his money to just about say and do anything that he wants to law enforcement, to uh, schools. schools, whatever. Um, they built a huge, I think a 35 to 4,000 square foot house. Um, that they had while they were married, while they had Ethan, that ends up after they separate later. They he, Tanya goes to live someplace else. His dad Fred builds another enormous house, ranch size, with a huge work shed or whatever you call it, workhouse. Work you know, shop. workshop. Yeah. yeah, and they basically. Leave Ethan to his own in this house. Now we're going to come back to that, but.
1: But at like 13, who who else
2: as a teenager was left in their parents' home? No. Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, Jeffrey Dahmer was abandoned in his oh. parents' home, basically mm. by his parents. Anyway, not saying the same thing, but just interesting. Right. I mean, it's neglect. Yeah, it is. So um, they divorce in 2006, and they both have incredible accusations against each other. Um, the judge, this judge, whoever this judge was, was great because the judge jumped in and immediately ordered psych profiles on mom and dad and Ethan in the presence of mom and dad separately in separate locations. That is a really good judgment. And in child custody cases, judges don't always ask for that. And, if anybody's planning on being a judge in their career, you should please commit this to memory. That's what you ask for because that's going to give you the clear picture of what these people are about. So, but Fred in his narcissistic way and during his interview with the social worker didn't even have the wherewithal to try and present well, because most narcissists don't have the wherewithal right. to even think that they need to present well. Oh, God. So basically that he tells social worker, I, I seriously, she needs, She deserves a medal. Yeah. So he tells a social worker that the marriage was a mistake from the start. Okay, well, then why'd you do it? You went through, now you've had a kid, you know. Right. Um, he accused Tanya of having a pill addiction. Um, and then Tanya is noted through many articles and a lot of research material on this case to have um, have had a legitimate substance abuse issue with alcohol, with pills, including benzos, um, Valium, and um, possibly pain medications. I think she also, she's she reported. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently she gave, um, according to Fred, and then something she admitted to later, she gave Ethan Vicodin as a kid. Yeah,
1: at nine.
2: There's there's no reason to give a child Vicodin right. unless they've had dental surgery or something. Come on. Um, Fred said that Tanya had made constant threats to commit suicide and that she would refer to Ethan, who was nine years old when all this was going on, that he was her protector. So right there, we have two huge psychological issues going on right there. Constant threats of suicide are highly indicative of borderline personality disorder. Um, And on top of this, uh, taking your child and using it as a wedge against your your um former partner is characterologically based and 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 it's what we what they did is she was placing ethan in a parentified role so taking this nine-year-old and giving him basically making him an ersatz husband which a kid can't understand that and it's completely unfair apparently she made him sleep in her room um in a separate bed that brought a different bed in but like for several years he was sleeping in her room right. um and after the uh separation uh and there was a decision that was made that there would be uh, dual custody and he would split time between each one tanya made a complaint to the social worker saying you know he doesn't supervise Ethan, he's not doing anything. He's not watching him. And when the social worker went back and and confronted Fred with this, Fred responded, "I'm not a mom."
0: Holy shit!
2: Yeah. So, I mean, Whoa. For those of you listening, I mean, for us as clinicians, there are bits and pieces throughout this story that are just absolute red flags, and and these are examples of them right here. So now, when we go to Tanya to get a description of her, um, she in the interviews accused fred of verbal and physical abuse and she said that she had been you know verbally abused by being called names that she had been physically assaulted and generally his go-to was to either grab her by the hair and throw her across the room she had reported that she had been thrown into the fireplace at least once and that on he had also attempted to choke her another red flag yeah
1: strangle her choking food
2: Oh, choking, food, strangle. strangle yes, hands. we use it wrong. Thank you. So, strangling, which is in the DV world, that's in another. That's yep. a huge, huge red flag. Yep. Now, it should also be noted that in his previous relationship, he had been accused of strangling his Girlfriend. ex, and then in his relationship after Tanya, he got um, accused of just, uh, attempting strangulation. So, clearly, right. we're talking about two parents that have some really, really significant issues. Now, age nine, Ethan is going through this. The court has ordered these evaluations also of him, and social worker describes him as patient, and he's polite, and he constantly, through the interview, he asserts that he loves his parents, and he wants to see his dad more often. Um, but he also wanted to feel secure, and I think that's an interesting word, and that's in quotes in the huh. in the paperwork. So that's an interesting word for a nine-year-old to use, and you. So yeah. it just makes me wonder: like, had he already been in therapy enough to understand what the word "secure" was? Had his mom used it? Well, he was
1: incredibly intelligent.
2: Oh, he was apparently a math genius. Yeah, yeah. He was in a special school, and like the teacher, like his teacher was probably the one solid mentor, role model model throughout his life and she showed up to all the trials and everything.
1: And maybe just being an only child and being around adults I could see how his vocabulary could be better maybe than we expect of a nine year old
2: so he also reported that his parents yelled a lot argued a lot and he really didn't like he or he wished that they would not put him in the middle so once again another red flag for parenting Good you know right there. yeah just like why am i in the middle you know mom is trying to use me as a shield dad is you know it's just a it, it's an awful place for a kid to be put especially you know. when we have evidence that it's not just a run of the mill argument between parents that is enough to upset a kid sure. this is chronic ongoing d- domestic violence that I'm sure he witnessed at some point. And then there's, you know, that traumatizes a kid. Well,
1: just the trauma of the instability, whether it's it, clearly he's saying he doesn't feel secure or his mom threatening to die by suicide, the bouncing, the back and forth. He probably doesn't see dad a lot. I'm sure he's very into his work, like a lot of affluenza kids are. Their parents are just not there because they're so committed to their work.
2: Well, yeah, but that's also a nice spin on this, on how Fred's been presenting. Yeah, like, no,
1: I think he's a dick. He's a and dick. <laughs> and, 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 Probably and, not too happy about being a parent, but. Right. And, yeah.
2: and, you know, there's no indication that he really has any desire to spend with us, which is, which is brutal to a, a child, sure. to a male or female child. And the, the, at the report, end of the report, the social worker concluded um, that Fred and Tanya continue to exhibit a high degree of animosity and conflict. And um, she really highlighted in her words that there was an extreme codependent relationship between Ethan and his mom, and the dad was incredibly inconsistent and invalidating in his relationship. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little yeah. bit. I'm using a little bit of her quotes, but I'm putting in some other words. But, um, once again, inconsistency, which is just inconsistency is about the worst thing that you can do to a child. And if you, if you want to mess a kid up intentionally, you'd be inconsistent with I was going to say
1: that's where a lot of mental illness is born right there.
2: Absolutely. So, um, now, one of the things also that's another big indicator is Fred and Tanya both historically had a long history of law enforcement interactions yep. for DUIs, public disturbances, being, which, things that would get cited down that actually right. were probably a lot bigger. And um, while they were being interviewed one of the times by the social worker, they had to call the police because both of them were being so non-cooperative. So
1: in 2003, Tanya was... Ding for reckless driving in a case where she intentionally forced a motorist off the road. Her road rage was just so out of control. She pled guilty, was fined, and got some probation. In 2005, she lied, lied about a charge on a form to renew her state nursing license. Years later, this was found out, and she ended up failing to show for a disciplinary hearing and, and lost her vocational nursing license.
2: Well, and there's something down the road after all this trial happens that's another indicator of Tanya's real problem with impulsivity. But we're going to get back to that in just a few minutes or less than a minute. We're going to take a break and then we'll come right back. So we'll see you in just a few, folks.
0: Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans-Rams 2000 Super Bowl, an instant classic. Dyson, Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street, accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded, and the verdicts came back, not guilty what you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened in O.J. Simpson, and look what happened in Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, but questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com.
1: Listen to the 48 Hours Podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And we are back.
1: So real quick before we move on, I wanted to go over some of the wonderful things in Fred's background as far as criminal history. So not only as a criminal, you mentioned the other cases of strangulation with other female partners, which if you haven't listened to our intimate partner homicide episode, please do that. We talk a lot about strangulation and the risk factor for intimate partner homicide when strangulation is one of the types of assault used there um in one of his business ventures he was sued because he was about a hundred thousand dollars in debt and just this pattern like didn't show up for the deposition you know of not both with him and tanya "Mm, not just going to show up for a hearing or a depo or yeah i don't i don't need to be there sort of thing i mean just the lack of responsibility
2: did you so i know you're going over this did you in the deposition about what the the attorney asked him if he said to a cop. Did you hear that one?
1: No, I don't know.
2: So he gets pulled over, Fred gets pulled over mm-hmm. and um he snarkily looks at the cop and says, I make more in a day than you make in a year.
1: Oh my and, God, as cops we love to oh, hear that one let hear me that. tell you
2: <laughs> and that became part of the police report and the attorney got it and read it to him and he said so, you're reported to have said this. Is this true? And his response was, that sounds like something I would say.
1: Uh-huh. Well, mm-hmm. sounds so, like your guy. Yeah.
2: You know, on one hand, he's being, like, authentic, but he's also telling on himself, like...
1: And come up with a new one, Fred. Like, no cop's ever heard... <laughs>
2: oh, seriously? <laughs> Just, uh,
1: you know, when I, I'm reading some of these, of like, Ethan's reactions to cops, and and I worked in a town where... It had a vast range of socioeconomic, um, the population there. I mean, we had professional sports players and a pretty affluent area of town. And so you would pull over these kids every once in a while. Or you're responding to the party that they're throwing when their parents aren't there. And these kids were just little shits. Yeah. And it is so easy to let them get under your skin. And or a parent, you know, you have these people as well I've come across them. Um, you know, as a police officers police officer, you're still expected to do your job professionally and responsibly. And now that there's body cams everywhere, people are much more aware of that. But there is something about a quote like that that gets under your skin. Um and so it, I know more, there's some cops that are affected more and that's their own thing.
2: I would probably, if I was a cop, I, I mean, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm, believe me, it's a good thing I'm not a cop. <laughs> I would be triggered by that. Yeah. I mean, and what, but what's funny to me is that even if it's a, a deputy in a small Texas town, they probably got better. It's like, well, at least I'm not a hundred thousand dollars in debt from my fucked right. up company and I've got insurance. Do you have, you know? Yeah. Like anyway, that's me yeah. being bitchy, yeah. but
1: it, but it, you know, for me it was always like, let me see how I can engage this individual to kind of get them past that. Right. Where In the I same didn't way that give I it, did. yeah, where yeah. I didn't really give it any attention, and it. But at the end of the day, you know, we wield the power of a pen. We can <laughs> write you up for one thing, or if you did. Five things wrong. We can put all five on there. Yeah, so exactly. So you're just digging yourself deeper. So tell us but more about
2: what Fred's history Fred, was
1: like. Um, Fred also decided to punch a contractor one day on the job because the contractor, it was actually a supervisor, was telling one of his guys not to use an unsafe table saw and telling him to, like, stop. And so Fred thought, you know, he would go over and punch him because he wanted work to continue for the day to keep making money. He actually got a few days in jail for that and probation. Uh, 2009, he was accused of sexual harassment uh, by a female employee. He decided to fire her once she uh, alleged some of this, Um, but they ended up settling out of court. So, again, throwing money at the problem. 2014, he, I, I think, I feel like this was like at a state park or a beach somewhere. And I don't know exactly what happened, but basically he got busted for impersonating a police officer. So he showed some sort of badge. He said, "Oh, I have my gear in the car."
2: Wait, Fred did? Yeah, Fred did. Did you know one of the survivors of the the car wreck was later cited for impersonating oh, really? a cop as well?
1: Yeah, Fred got, a, Fred got in got a year probation. I don't know. He got a year probation for that. Okay,
2: okay how so. creepy is that? That we've talked about. We've talked about killers, and that's their mo of how the strangulation, they strangulation,
1: use- the impersonating a police officer. This, I, yeah, he's got a really creepy vibe to him. Dad does, but and then I don't know if you have it. I think I remember it from getting off, but there was some situation at Ethan's school, and. The dad said, "Can I just buy the school?" He
2: was—that was what you were talking about earlier. He was driving to school, and the principal said,
1: oh, "No, yeah, he's a minor. He
2: can't drive to school." Well, I'll just buy the school.
1: No, that's not. First, yeah. you can't buy a school. Second,
2: well, he, he it was a private school, and he did try and buy it, but
1: but that doesn't fix able, the problem right. of the law of a child not being able right. to drive.
2: Once again, rules don't apply to me.
1: Right, or I can fix it.
2: Yeah, with my checkbook. So, I mean, yeah, th- that's yeah. I it, did you have more on Tanya?
1: No, other than you had the idea earlier that we should just do an episode on women named Tanya.
2: <laughs> we should. <laughs> oh, my God. It's just like Florida Man. It's like the part- podcast Florida Man. We should do <laughs> one on Tanya. There's, there's several Tanyas to do. The one thing um, that does come back is, like, after all the trial and Ethan was, um, you know, even the, the probation went did not go as planned, obviously, and he was was sentenced to to time. And there was one time where he had violated, because they had posted on social media, of him playing beer pong with a group of miscreant yeah. youths. Yeah. So not even, not even the impulse control or good judgment to take himself out of that milieu, but went right back into it, echoing his father's behaviors of, the rules don't apply to me. I do what I want. And so now... It's been posted on, post on uh, social media. Mm-hmm. The, the cops are going to come after him, or law enforcement's going to come after him for a violation of his terms. What does mom do instead of holding him accountable? Scoops him up. She scoops him up in her lovely, warm, nurturing breast. Right. Puts him in the car and drives him to fucking Mexico. Mexico. Yeah. Where they're and I think dyes his hair too, so he went from being like a strawberry blonde to like a
1: bleach blonde. Uh, no, or this was like or a was creepy
2: brunette. Like Ew. it made him look really bad. Oh. Um, so I want to circle back around. and I want to talk about some of the research that I found from a fantastic article. But
1: hang on, he got two years in jail because of that probation violation from
2: the Mexico. Yes. when they got him back, yes. and she got charges too.
1: She did. I think she's. I think they're still freaking pending for her. I couldn't find anything. As of last year, where it had been resolved yet? So she, I'm sure, with her money, she's just dragging it out. But yeah, he he got two years. He had to serve two years. He got released in 2018.
2: Now, also before I go, well, even before I go back to that research article, the other thing was is that he had been sentenced. I'm using air quotes to do before his probation. He was just going to do time in a ritzy. Sober living facility. So right. they sent him to so, Newport Ranch.
1: The Newport Academy. Newport Academy. Which is in Newport Beach here in California. Um, so, yeah, he he got, well, they chose to send him there. He had to do treatment. It's not as if the judge sentenced him to Newport Academy. Right. And,
2: and, folks, guess how much that costs.
1: Um, I'm just like,
2: just think Jeopardy news. 100000
1: a year? No. <laughs> keep
2: going what is it 450 a it, year it was I mean it, I thought it was like they spent $90,000 think he, was so supposed, he wasn't he was there spo- that long right he was supposed to be there but it was a lot of money okay twenty.
1: It's, so a 30 day program and $2,200 a day
2: Twenty two hundred dollars a day.
1: Right. So he he did go there for a bit and then he ended up at a state facility in Texas. So
2: For a hundred and three dollars a day. <laughs> right, right. So we're something, talking
1: about something, or the state was paying something for much it. more
2: appropriate.
1: Um There's a. I don't want to go into it. We we don't have time for it. But there's a very, of course, well-written article by our friend Bob Colker. Uh, It's
2: Um, really good, folks.
1: About um, about this Newport Newport Academy Academy. called Affluenza Anonymous Rehab for the young, rich, and addicted. And I love, in true like Bob Colker style, just really stepping back and getting to learn what it's about. And I, I think. It will help build your empathy for kids that are coming from these homes. And isn't it so funny, like, we're the not, way I not, say that? Not,
2: and we're also not asking you to have empathy um, or let Ethan off the hook no, for his no. terrible parents. We're not asking that. But but that article, you know, you'll come away. Colker does an amazing job. I'll tell you what my, my experience was. I came away from that particular article not really caring very much for the kid who... Who started the, it. The man who runs it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I understand his perspective. I don't necessarily agree with his perspective. I thought Colker did a great job of being completely neutral. I did too. And there are people that are supporters. There are people that are detractors. There's a lot of perspective given in that article.
1: Yeah. But to, to isolate it and say, look, there are people, children, people that are growing up in a certain environment, which breeds its own unique problems. And
2: it just happens to be an environment that we all have a bias thinking yes. that there are no problems in that environment, right. which is completely incorrect.
1: Right. Cause as we were talking about in planning this episode, if I just list off a child from a neglected or single or absent parent household, substance abuse, antisocial behavior, that could be someone in Newport or that could be someone in South Los Angeles. Exactly. It just the descriptors are the same. One has money.
2: One, maybe doesn't. one doesn't. One comes, one may be square-jawed, blonde hair, blue-eyed and the other one is a person of color. Right. Male of color.
1: Right. So this article is great and really kind of diving into and I go to the Newport Academy website and we all would love spend some time there. Yeah, I think they have, that's They one. have multiple
2: campuses now throughout the United States. That was but. one of the... But but all incredibly expensive. Uh-huh. Like, all are oh, that, yeah. that expensive. There's no cheap ones. He, I mean, he says that there are scholarships and that they take insurance, and, but it's very, very expensive. But yeah. I, I wanted to go back around to the article by uh, Sunya and Luther, um... Because it really hits some very valuable points. And it's talking about sort of that challenge that um, children from affluent families have and what they experience. So when children feel that their parents disproportionately value um, personal success, So like in their school work, their sports achievements or their careers far down the line, when they um, value those far more than they value their personal decency and kindness, the kids show elevated symptoms of depression and anxiety. So that's, this is research. This is not uh, a theorized. This is because these two uh, researchers saw this over and over again. So they replicated the study. So look, Children from affluent families exhibit serious levels of maladjustment as teenagers, and they can display behavioral, mental health, and substance use more significantly than their counterparts of low socioeconomic status. So that's really important to notice. So why would we think why would that be? Because they have access to it. Yeah. They've got no one looking, no one monitoring. Their day, they you know, if they go and take four hundred dollars out of mom's wallet, she's probably not going to notice no. that it's gone. No, they have access to drugs, sure. Instead of and it usually it can be delivered to them, right? You know, it's just a whole different world from the kid in South Central or South LA, right? So the researchers were unsure of their initial findings, and so they replicated them among studies in 10th graders in different affluent communities in the Northeast. And once again, they found the same results. So it's not only substance use that is one of the sort of parallel experiences. Crime emergence as a significant phenomenon, but it's very different in type between those two subsets of kids. So affluent versus lower SES. SES is is short for socioeconomic. So rich kids cheat. They steal from their parents and their peers, while lower SES kids' crimes are generally related to crimes that are emerging around the idea of self-defense. So lower SES kids are more likely to carry a weapon that will end up in a crime using a weapon. Not saying that they don't engage in robberies, but we are comparing these two things. But it's
1: just a crime to carry it on you.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So affluent youth populations vary across the country in terms of substance use and drug use, but they display similarly high levels of symptoms related to depression and anxiety. And
1: then what do you do to self-medicate?
2: Exactly. But what was really crazy is that even male and female uh, kids of more affluent families are more likely to engage... To address symptoms of anxiety and depression, they will engage in self-harm. This blew my way. I didn't realize yeah. they engage more in cutting, yeah. more in burning, male and female, I did read that. and in impulsive acts that are dangerous, like driving seventy miles an hour sure. down a dark country road. Right. So, well, and
1: I, I guarantee you. I mean, okay, I don't, but I theorize their resilience is way lower. To like, oh, my God, how am I here? What do I do now? And it's just this spiral out of control where maybe someone who didn't have money rescuing them or feel like you have that false sense of safety is actually learning to be pretty resilient. Right. From the many obstacles they have in their life where the kids all all of a sudden sort of find themselves in this downward spiral. Right. I don't know. I'm that's just
2: It's yeah, I mean it's so, you know, we make these assumptions. We make these assumptions that You can throw money at anything, even though we're sitting here we're like Fred has demonstrated that clearly throwing money at at problems does not fix it, but we still are pulled towards that incorrect assumption. And we assume that that money also opens up doors to treatment. Well, yeah, it can open up a door to a $90,000 a month treatment facility, but it doesn't mean anything about the quality of what they're going to get there or- Whether or not they're going to engage in that any more than someone.
1: Sure, it's all on them how much they put into it. You
2: know, one of the things about working with people who have, you know, histories of substance abuse is that, you know, when you have someone that walks in the room and they're from an affluent family, you kind of have a little pit in your stomach because you go, shit, they have so much farther to fall than somebody who has less, somebody who has less. And I'm not saying it's better because it doesn't matter whether you're drowning in three feet of water or 200 feet of water. It does not matter if you're still drowning, but the person with less resources is going to hit the ground sooner and maybe be less torn up by it as opposed to a rich kid that just keeps fucking up and keeps fucking up and keeps getting bailed out. So- you know, they're they're assuming, and this is one of the things that they're basing their research on, is that all of this is coming from the pressure to reach high levels of achievement and the idea of failure and not have any mentorship or parenting role models in how to deal with the fear of that failure only increases their symptomology of anxiety and depression, which then they self-medicate with either substances or behavioral components of impulse and acting out. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, this is a parallel. It's not directly related to Ethan because I think Ethan himself, you know, we talk about the idea of Uh, we've talked about psychopathy sociopathy here the general term of antisocial behavior look when it comes to child rearing it's possible for two um, genetically normal no aberrational parents to have a kid that has bad wiring and becomes you know a person who exhibits those type of dangerous behaviors but in this situation I don't know what the genetic makeup is but at some point Ethan turned a corner and he didn't have great role models. In fact, he clearly took on his dad's arrogance and denial and dismissal of any kind of responsibility, thinking that he could buy his way out of things or that his choices had no consequences. And then further, his mom would remove him from any kind of accountability, right? So these, while I don't know if he has antisocial personality disorder, I don't know.
1: And at 16- You can't really diagnose that. You can't diagnose that. And there's this underlying thing that we talk about with brain development, like all of us when we're 16, whether you're Shiloh shoplifting underwear or you're Ethan deciding to pile all your friends into a truck while you're blacked out drunk, that- Well, and that's substance abuse being on top of your decision-making, but that you're not weighing risks and consequences the way a fully developed
2: brain would be. Exactly. Okay. So what you're talking about then is so important because we're talking about a teenager and we're looking at the possible diagnostic criteria. Certainly, substance abuse is playing a huge part uh, in that moment, in that environment, because it's taking away, it's stripping away inhibition. It is... It's
1: increasing impulsivity, which is already high for a person that is... He's
2: completely now disinhibited. But on top of that, historically, while he has been problematic and impulsive, and made bad decisions, and been entitled, he has not exhibited what we call conduct disorder. And conduct disorder is the diagnostic criteria when you look at a kid who, you're not going to give him a diagnosis of a personality disorder yet, but you're going to make a note of behaviors. And conduct disorder is sort of, the way to describe it, when I talk about school kids, that we have a diagnosis called oppositional defiant disorder where a kid can be an angel at home but an absolute dick at school or a, an angel at school and a complete dick at home and that's playing with the sense of autonomy and individuation and developing their own personalities and there may be things that are causing it at home or causing it in the environment that that aggravates it however conduct disorder is is markedly different from oppositional defiant because the individual, the kid violates the rights of others. This is the kid on the playground that lies in wait like a predator for the kid to run by him and he sticks out his leg so the kid will trip. Right. Interestingly enough, Ethan's not, not doing this. That
1: right. He's Even- impulsive.
2: He's <laughs> substance using. He's making terrible decisions. Sexually assaulted that girl but there's, it's, there's flexible on that description, right? Because they're only a,
1: right. Me, like neither of them hard. can give consent. So, right. I mean, not sexually assaulted in a violent matter, but yeah, if, if you think about those things, especially with men, when they're depressed, they do things that make them feel good. Sex, substance abuse, it, it the symptoms can be acting out behaviors that's not necessarily violating the rights of someone like you're saying. So yeah, he's, he's acting out and they might be illegal.
2: Well, wait, let but, me, let me put a pin in this then. Yeah. So, cause I, you corrected me and I want to make sure I'm corrected mm-hmm. appropriately. So that for our listeners yeah. is like, you're saying that in that incident with the young girl, that would not have been sexual assault.
1: It depends on the state. Okay. And there's all sorts of different reporting laws, but first of all, we don't so, know
2: what happened? So, I can't make a judgment no, on that. No, no, no. So, let's be very clear to our listeners. I'm right. not making a judgment on that. I am saying she was naked. She was 14. He's 15. They're right. both drunk, passed they're out. Both
1: passed out. Right. So, it's very, you know, there's something going on here. Clearly, we can probably see through the lines, but he, she can't give consent at her age. He can't give consent either. So, it's one of those things whereas if you're conducting an investigation, it's like, do we charge both of them? Do we charge neither of them? Right. What What do we do here? And, you, you know, that would be when you ask a district attorney, what do you want us to do with this? Because what are the odds of it being filed? How are the parents feeling? That sort of thing. Um, yeah, so to back up that, okay. I, I think it's hard to make assumptions. Again, even if you're the cop, like, rolling up on this, like, what do I have is the first thing you have to ask yourself. Okay. Um, but, yeah, just going back to what I was saying earlier is when you know tying in the high levels of anxiety and depression with women we think of the more traditional symptoms of like crying and laying in bed with the covers pulled over your head and in men sometimes they tend to instead act out and or their irritability and anger increases because they just channel the negative feelings <laughs> through anger which is socially acceptable but there's a lot of acting out behavior that we see with males instead of the sort of traditional symptoms. So whatever can kind of make them feel good in the moment because right. they feel so bad. So whether it's I'm going to drive my motorcycle fast down this windy road or I'm going to go skydiving or I'm going to go cheat on my wife or I'm going to abuse substances, it makes me feel alive for a moment. Right. So. Anyway, I'm sorry I took you off on a wing. No, no, no. no. I, I, wanted, I thought that
2: that's a good conversation to have. Um, so yeah, we're you know we're talking about um, sort of the idea of the the repercussions of antisocial uh, traits in parenting. Um, you know, a kid that is exposed to this, it's really traumatic and injurious to a child who's raised by a parent with these characteristics. So traits or characteristics such as deceitfulness, irresponsibility, unreliability, um, the inability to feel guilt, remorse, to process that so that a kid witnesses it in a in a healthy way, seeing mom and dad process these difficult emotions, that has an impact on, a, on the kid who's just sponging all of this up. They're learning behaviors. They're learning and making assumptions on what are are uh, acceptable behaviors.
1: Yeah, what's being modeled for them.
2: Right. And if the kid does have empathy or does have the ability to have that range of emotions that maybe a, a, an ASPD individual doesn't have in a way that makes it even harder for them because their emotional experience is now being invalidated. Probably like on some level, Tanya and Fred had in their background, Probably. maybe, yeah, you know, the, sure. it, it just goes back and intergenerational trans tra- transmission of trauma. But It's, you know, this has an effect. Um, Parental pathology like this damages and has effects on the child's emotional, cognitive, social development. Um, It it ends up in in trauma and, and it really affects. That individual's ability in the long term to be able to form healthy interpersonal relationships. Now, look, not all kids who experience this type of parenting are doomed. You know, they're not. It's it's not uh, written in stone. But it's really vital to remember that there are genetic and environmental factors that contribute to the development of antisocial behavior. So, look, a, a good a kid with a biological or genetic predisposition to antisocial behavior and is raised in an authoritarian and invalidating, validating—excuse me, invalidating parental style can be really at risk yeah, of developing. It's it's really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's that's interesting. Ben Ager, who is a sociology professor uh, and director of the Center for Theory at the University of Texas at Arlington, has a really interesting quote. I mean, he, he feels very strongly that children spoiled by the wealth, wealthy parents should be considered to be victims, that they can be victims. And he says, the kid is a victim in this case, not of being wealthy, but the consequences of his unbounded behavior. It's hard for us to accept that because he killed people and he's getting off. Ultimately, adults are responsible, both as role models and parents who turn a blind eye to their children's reckless behavior. I feel like that just-
1: Oh, yeah. Boom.
2: That, like, really hits it right there. It
1: makes you wonder, like, had Ethan done this? And what if his parents threw their hands up and stepped away and said, we're not paying for your defense? I wonder what would have happened if he got a court-appointed attorney and, you know, maybe they... they do great jobs sometimes as well but if you don't have these this money and these high powered attorneys behind you it's really interesting or if they couldn't have afforded a $15,000 psych evaluation
2: so let what me would have happened? i know and let me so let me challenge my own assumptions like the issue about him violating probation by playing beer pong mm-hmm. you know As much as I had a reaction to that, let me challenge myself by saying, what if that's the only way he knew how to cope? Yeah. Like that Uh, was his uh, going right uh, back to substance use and going back to partying. That was the only way he knew how to cope. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying, like, if he was never given any tools... And any boundaries for constructing a life, then how, what's what does he know? You know,
1: and it's- ten years probation. So if you step into his shoes, he thinks for a decade I have to be squeaky clean. It's a long time. It's not jail time. It's not. Yeah. It's not an eye for an eye for you know the crime he committed. But ten years probation is a long time. I can see him going, "Fuck this!" Like I'm. just... Well, like you said, and
2: and when it comes to brain development, it's, you know, he's still developing and he, there's still, you know, just because that happened doesn't mean that he is able to understand and follow through on the consequences of his behavior and like, oh, everything I've done up until this point got me into this amount of trouble. I have to change those things. I mean, that's, in a way, that's asking a lot. Once again, we're not justifying any of this. It's just...
1: No, he needed a lot I'm, of therapy thrown at him afterwards.
2: I, I at
1: the least, would say so too. I, and
2: I, the other thing that I would say that to me, and I'm a big one on this because anecdotally, before I came into this profession, I used to see it a lot and something that I continue to harp on as far as like, when we look at, you know, when you are doing a psych evaluation, we have a, a bunch of things that we look at as far as behaviors and body movements and where a person's attention is going when they're being interviewed. And that all helps really paint a picture of what they're bringing into the room. And so while I'm not saying, I mean, I'm certainly not an expert on body language and I don't think that that's necessarily a, a a hard science by right. any means there are things about ethan's presentation over the last few years that are really um n- uh noticeable okay. and that is like he constantly dyes his hair darker and he's always not even if none if it's not even his mug shots he's always unkempt Like it's just this weird shaggy beard, weird bowl cut hair, you know, know, kind of tousled clothes. So it's like he has no identity. Like there's no, he doesn't have any foundation of who he is. And I think that that's something that... Is definitely a possibility of happening when you don't have parents that give you any kind of solid foundation as a well, springboard for developing an individual. And what's
1: his legacy? Being the affluenza teen—that's right. his identity. He needs to find some meaning and purpose in his right. life and create his new identity. So, should we talk about the psyche valve to, before we wrap yeah. up? Um. So. I, I don't have much on it. I know you dove into it a little bit more. But, um, so the Dr. G. Dick Miller is the psychologist that was hired to do the psych eval during the original trial. And he ha- so he's the one that, was it in his report or was it on the stand that he used the term influenza?
2: I thought it was on the stand. I thought it
1: was, too. I don't, yeah. I don't remember anything about like it officially being in the report. Not that we have the report to say, but... And um, because he was a minor, this
2: is really... I mean, it, there's yeah, a lot exactly. of stuff available because the crime was so big, but there's also a lot of stuff that if the, he was an adult, we would have access to a lot more material.
1: Yeah. So, essentially, when Dr. Miller was talking about affluenza, he really felt it was, for Ethan, a result of being coddled by his parents and learning nothing from his first interactions and incidents with law enforcement. Basically this, I can get away with anything mentality, to the point that he said, Couch never even really determined a sense of right from wrong, which is one of the basic things when when a child is arrested and we bring them in and conduct the investigation, at least here in California, there's actually a form you go over with a minor To ask them questions about right from wrong. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So how many questions is it? It's a few. It's give me an example of doing something right. Give me an example of doing something wrong.
2: So part of like a status exam that we would do in jail, we would have a question where we would say, "You're walking down the street. You walk past a mailbox." And then you see a stamped, sealed envelope addressed on the ground. What do you do with it? Right. And, of course, the right answer is you pick it up and you put it in the mailbox.
1: Right.
2: And so many times we are like,
1: <laughs> I many- opened it
2: up because <laughs> there's probably money in What's it. What's in
1: there? Yeah, it, it's not scenario-based. It's just you want them to articulate to you an open-ended what okay. right from wrong is. Um, maybe even ask like, okay, when you do something wrong at home, like how do your parents handle that just to get an, an idea. Um, so you have to do that essentially before you're interviewing or interrogating um, a child or a minor, I should say. Um, so So the psychologist in this sense is saying that he felt like he never couch never developed a sense of right and wrong or suffered any repercussions for his bad behavior. Um, where he said, if you hurt someone, you say you're sorry. And then if that, in that family, you hurt someone and you throw money at it. So he was, it, he even recommended that Ethan be removed from his parents, which that's a pretty bold statement to make. I mean, you're, you're not even doing a child custody evaluation <laughs> and he's yeah. seeing how toxic, these parents are and he's recommending that he be removed
2: well now you're changing my perspective on him
1: so i think so my my takeaway was okay he used this term that the media just decided to sink its teeth into and run with because it makes a great story here we are talking about it all these years later
2: um because that was the tagline. The psychologist says that the teen suffers from affluenza.
1: And I think over holy and over shit. again that like, was said on the news. To have your words taken like that and now it's being labeled as this was his whole defense strategy. And when you know, when you're on the stand and you're trying to explain terms You want to do it so people understand what you're saying. Not everyone in that courtroom has a doctorate. And sometimes you might use some language that feels a little bit more casual. I think this was definitely one of those things that came out of his mouth. And it was like, oh, shit, I probably shouldn't have labeled it like that. Because then they were off and running with it, which wasn't his fault. I don't think. I
2: mean, Dr. Drew.
1: Oh, Dr. Drew said uh, it was disgusting.
2: um, I mean, and, and then again, like Whatever. being But you know, somebody <laughs> it's their job
1: to be talking heads and they're talking judge talking
2: and and of course they would they would I would say that as well if I was in that position. But I think that's one of the the challenges here is that you know we always just need to like pull the reins back yeah. and get all the information when right. we can. But he came out later and like I completely regretted.
1: Right. Right. But I, I think his evaluation was solid and he did a good job at that. It's just this whole, I mean, I don't even think he could have anticipated this would have been the fallout right. from it. So, um, but you said that some other statements he made afterwards seemed a bit much. He should yeah, have just well, but,
2: but now, but see, you've given me a down. different context. So I want to talk about that. Be. So, yeah, Dr. Dick. As he, is. oh my I'm sorry. God, isn't he Doctor G Dick something?
1: G Dick Miller.
2: So look, you know, one of the things that I mean, I I felt for him. I remember when he it came back around. and He said I should never have used that term. And I remember reading the, uh, some of the articles and him saying a lot about what you said, of like this. I was trying to paint a picture, and like, and I think probably you know. I was siding more with him at that time as well because I was like, well, you know, that's your job to do. You you took this job to to do right. this thing. But the thing recently is I read some more articles and he's being a little bit more, uh, open, shall we say, even to the point where he called Fred an asshole. I mean, right. He basically just said Fred's an asshole. And I remember like having a reaction to that and probably some, countertransference myself because I'm a I'm a mouthy psychologist and I <laughs> I put myself I put my foot in my mouth all the time. You're as, like,
1: "Who wasn't me Whew, this?" Was time. I did not do it?
2: And you know, but now that you know what offers me the opportunity to like take a step back from you know being all judgy about Dr. G Dick is that statement of him wanting to take Ethan out of the home, like that, really says a lot. Because, think, like you said, yeah. it's not a custody evaluation, but in but this he guy felt
1: the responsibility.
2: He felt the responsibility, and yeah. he was like, "This is this is bad," and this this is and and to even have like to still feel that way after Ethan had engaged in this crime, this this accident, sure, sure. you know, that killed. Right. All these innocent people. Like, I think that there's probably a lot more emotion about the parents than we're even touching on.
1: Well, and and he is allowed to have that emotion. And, yeah, of course, it, yes, you can think Fred is an asshole. Just don't say it to the media. Yeah. Did, you know, at that point, you need to close your mouth. Your job is done. It, it's not something to be out in front talking it's about. not what we do no. as,
2: as professionals. And, you know, I might say that here on my podcast, but, like, I, we, I, we de-identify things. And, right. and certainly, like, if I testified on the stand about somebody, I probably wouldn't talk much about it. No. Especially if no. it was something like this.
1: Yeah. So January of 2020, just a couple months ago... Ethan was actually arrested by probation because—so he has a, um, one of those drug monitoring patches. Oh, wow. And it tested positive for THC, um, but it was a weak positive, so they released him from jail upon further investigation. Um, he is claiming that it's CBD oil that— could be, yeah. Dripped onto, I guess, if there's THC in the CBD oil.
2: Well, but the the ones that are supposed to be the most effective-
1: Should have a little, have like the lowest like, amount like of THC.
2: Like a tiny percent of THC in order yeah. to make the CBD work. Right. So. It, has, it
1: helps with the bonding elements, But so I hear. Yes. Um, but, yeah, so he was, we'll see what happens, but technically violated probation- just a couple of months ago.
2: Yeah. So. You know, one to, thing to end on is that um, there is a pastor that was interviewed that worked with him in, in jail. And the pastor was interviewed, and he said, I think Ethan is really just now starting to understand what he's done. And so I have mixed feelings about that. For one thing, it's like, you know, you know, a pastoral relationship is a lot like a therapeutic relationship and there's confidentiality involved. And, you know, did you need to say that? Yeah, what, why, are you what, talking? why are you talking? And, um, so, you know, I, I, don't know, that's apropos of nothing, but except that like this kid is, is such an, uh, this young man is such an, an interesting and identifiable nexus of upbringing and environmental factors and a crime that I think is thankfully is very rare mm-hmm. but it says something about sort of our society and the inequality of uh economics you know right. your economics says I mean in the way in a way he still had enough money to throw at it to not have to do what anybody else in his position would have had even a poor white person would not have had the money right. to throw at that right. and would have been in, in prison for 20, 25 years.
1: Absolutely. For dead people. Yeah. Is what we're talking about. So, okay, that's influenza. We did it. We're going to have some fun stuff in April. Yeah. We're already planning for that. Um, so we're going to bring you some good times next month for our episodes. Anything
2: else? Well, look, we don't know what's going to be happening with, um, the current pandemic, which I guess technically it is a pandemic. Well, the
1: president said last night it was. Okay,
2: well, there you go. Um, (laughs) We have been planning to go... To CrimeCon. Right. We're buying our tickets. We yeah. Got our, we got our tickets for, for the show. We're buying yep. our plane tickets tonight. Right. We're hoping that it will go on as planned. Haven't heard anything different. No, That's uh, almost two months away. Fingers lo- crossed. A lot of great good things.
1: Energy
2: out there. Yeah. Wash your hands wash. so that we can all <laughs> go to CrimeCon. <laughs> We'd love to go.
1: We would love to go.
2: So... Okay. That's great. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time, but please um, give us a couple of stars. Give us a review, and um, we'll see you next time on L.A.
1: Not so.
2: Confidential. Bye-bye. Bye, folks.